Let's open up our Bibles together now to Romans chapter 6. We are continuing to make our way through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given us. Picking up where we left off last week. We're going to be reading though together starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. We'll actually be covering this morning starting in verse 8, but I want to read the whole passage uh, together this morning. So hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious treasure that you have given to us, that through your word we hear the voice of our God. By your spirits working through your word, you call even dead hearts to live and blinded eyes to see. You transform your people into the likeness of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that your word by your spirit would accomplish all of your good purposes in us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 9.45 a.m., Sunday morning, January 26th of this year, soon-to-be Hall of Fame basketball player Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, seven others died in a helicopter crash. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. Experts believe the cause of the crash to have been pilot error combined with terrible weather. The pilot, they say, had switched from using his helicopter's instruments to relying just on his visuals. He had told the air traffic controller that he was just flying low enough to follow the highway. The problem was there were spotty areas of incredibly dense fog that morning, and the pilot at some point became disoriented. He wasn't relying on his navigational instruments anymore. The air traffic controller had told him he was flying too low, but he wasn't relying on the air traffic controller anymore. And so at one point, the air traffic controller reports he thought he was climbing in altitude, but he was actually descending, ultimately flying into the side of a mountain, killing everyone on board. He thought he could trust what he saw. He thought he could trust what he felt. God has actually designed the human body in such a way that we can see and feel where we are in relationship to the earth. So all we have to do is look at the horizon, and we have a good idea 
of what's up and what's down. But there are certain circumstances where that doesn't hold true. If we are in the air in a plane or a helicopter and we can't see anything. So far true, Mel? Okay. I told Mel, if I'm wrong about this, shake your head silently, but don't say it out loud and people will assume I'm right. But the pilot confirms. It happens to people who are like cave diving underwater as well. They don't know what's up, what's down, what way to go. Our ability to know where we are is impeded in those situations. And so airplanes and helicopters come equipped with critical instruments designed to give the pilot vital information, information they need to know, but information that in a moment they might not be able to see or feel for themselves. Things like, how fast am I going? What direction am I going? Am I ascending or descending, which is important? At what rate am I doing those things? And so if you can't see or feel those things, those instruments are of critical importance to you. You need them. You must rely on them. A pilot needs to learn how to fly by the instruments. And so the reason they're so important is because what they're giving is objective truth. It's not truth based on feelings. They are telling you what is actually happening to you in that moment, even if your feelings are telling you something entirely different is happening. So pilots are trained to fly by the instruments over their own physiology. They need to trust something outside of themselves. Well, what does that have to do with Romans chapter 6 and the things that we've just read? I'm guessing it's pretty obvious to you what that has to do with what we just read. You and I need to learn to rely on and trust objective truth, even when our feelings are shouting to us something that is contrary to what that objective truth has to say. If you're a believer, Paul has said some astounding things to you. That's why I wanted to start from verse 1 here in this passage, even though we're just looking at verses 8 through 11. He, he has said that you have died to sin. He has said that you walk in newness of life. He has said that you have been freed from sin. Astounding things, Paul says, about the believer. And yet, these things are very hard to believe. Things are very hard to believe because of the reality of the presence of sin still in our lives. It doesn't always feel like we're freed from sin, does it? As we saw last week, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he broke both the penalty of sin and the power of sin in the life of the believer, but the presence of sin remains. The presence of sin will not be removed fully until that day when we see him face to face, when we are in glory. And so as we grow in Christ, the more you come to know him, the more you come to love him, haven't you noticed that you're more aware of your sin than you were when you were first converted? I was having a conversation with, with someone this week talking about when I was converted as an 18-year-old, I was looking at the external things I did as my major sins that needed to be dealt with. And the Lord actually took those things away in an instant at the moment of my conversion. And I thought, this is easy. And it wasn't until some years went by and I realized, oh, the real dark stuff, that's what's in my heart. That's what's in my mind that the Lord needs to deal with. So as we look at ourselves, our sin becomes more apparent to us. It becomes more troubling to us as we're growing in Christ. So how can it be, if, when we look at ourselves and we see this, that sin's power is broken in me if I keep sinning so often, so regularly, if I cannot control my heart and my mind? 
Well, this is what Paul has to say to us. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. This resurrection life, as we saw last week, by our union with Christ, belongs to us. We, we have it. We have this resurrection life. And, and the main verb in this entire passage is this word, believe. If we have died with Christ, we believe. This main idea in this passage, verses 8 through 11, that we're considering this morning, is that we are to believe something. Everything else in the passage is modified by that word, believe. It all relates to that idea of belief. And the reality that we live, if we could just be honest with each other for one moment on a Sunday morning, the reality that we live Christ's resurrection life right now can be incredibly hard to believe when we look at our lives. Because sin is dark. And the fog of our experience with sin confuses us. You and I need some things that we can rely on. We need objective truths that are reliable, that are not subject to our feelings, that are not subject to our emotions, our circumstances, our experiences. Believing and trusting in objective truth is our only hope for overcoming the fog that exists around our own experience, when we come face to face with our own sin. So if we're going to battle sin, and Romans chapter 6 is all about that. It's all about sanctification in the life of the Christian, putting sin to death, growing in godliness. If we're going to do that, we need to learn to navigate this Christian life based on objective truth. And not the things we see, not the things we feel. We have to believe what Romans 6 tells us about ourselves. Because sin is still present in us, we are tempted to doubt that we really have died to sin. Because sin is still present in us, we are tempted to doubt the reality that sin's power really has been defeated in us. We are not slaves to sin any longer. Because sin is still present in our lives, we're tempted to forget that we're free. Called to walk in newness of life. So in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, as we're considering this morning, Paul encourages us, believe what's true. To believe about ourselves what is already true about us if we are in Christ. So he outlines that for us in these four verses. I want to look at five marks of the faith that battles against sin. As Paul lines out here, if, if we're going to put sin to death in our lives, if we're going to walk in this, this kind of freedom from sin and this newness of life that Paul says is already ours, what kind of faith do we need to have? These verses give us five marks of that. First, is that this faith only belongs to one category of people, genuine believers. Not all the world has this kind of faith. He says in verse 8, look at the first word, if, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. It's only believers who have this hope. It's only believers who are living with Christ. It is ours only if we have died with Christ. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, have I died with Christ? Have you? Can you say what Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that true of you? Does your life testify that that's true? 
resurrection living, the power for dealing with sin in a way that pleases God belongs only to those who have died with Christ. So we should examine ourselves. Has there been a fundamental change in your relationship to sin because you've entered into union with Christ? If not, if you remember to the early chapters of Romans, those of you that have been with us as we've gone through this book, as Paul takes us over to the edge of this abyss and, and has us look down into the filth and rebellion and decay and shaking our fists in God's face and being his enemies and hating him. If you claim to have been saved out of that pit, but you still are in it, you've got no grounds whatsoever for fighting sin. You've not died with Christ. You've got no way to deal with sin until you enter into a union with Christ that pulls you out of that and unites you to himself. But if you are in Christ, his unlimited resources are at our disposal. We have all that we need in this fight. Second thing we see is that this faith has a particular content. Verse eight again, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Resurrection life is ours already. That's what Paul wants us to believe. Christian, that's what Paul wants you to know. Resurrection life is yours. We, that we are united with Christ, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. And so Paul uses the future tense here. We will also live with him because this is the necessary consequence of union with Christ. If you've been united with Christ, you will live with him. But it's not just that you will live with him in the future. This is also what it means to walk as a Christian right now in this life. No one who has died with Christ fails to live Jesus' resurrection life. Those who have died with him are raised with him. Our union with Christ is not just a union with his death. It is a union with his resurrection life. He told us in verse 4 that we're called to walk in newness of life. That's why he raised us. So here's what this means for you, believer. Jesus didn't leave you on some sort of neutral ground. He didn't pull you up out of that pit and set you on the edge of it and go, now I'm giving you a chance. Pull yourself up. Clean yourself up. Do better. Don't fall back into that pit. No, he didn't leave us on neutral ground where we're dead to sin, but the rest is up to us. He made us to live. He made us to walk in newness of life. This should be a massive encouragement to you. He didn't just pull you out of the pit. He united you to himself. You are hidden in him. You can expect to walk in newness of life, but sometimes this requires a significant amount of faith on our part to believe that that's actually true. To believe that that's actually what happened. We, we, we need to believe this. We need to preach this to ourselves. When, when we're weary in our battle with sin, when we're tempted to give up, when we're tempted to just give in, we need to believe what God's word tells us, that, that we now live together with Christ, that we are united with Christ, that we are in him. And often it doesn't feel like that's true, doesn't it? So we need to believe. 
We need to believe what Paul's telling us here in Romans chapter 6. We need to bring our feelings into submission to the objective truth of the word of God. Faith that battled sin is grounded in what we know. And that leads right into the next verse. The third thing we see of this faith, it's built on the foundation of truth. He says in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. We know. How do we believe? We believe by knowing. Now in verse 6, Paul has said this phrase, we know, but it was actually a different Greek word than the one he uses here for we know. The, verse, the words he uses in verse 6 mean we know something by experience. But here in verse 9, it's a different word. This word means we know this by objective truth. So, so in verse 6, he says, we come to know by experience that the result of our union with Christ is the systematic demolishing of sin in our lives. But now as we come to verses 9 and 10, we don't know just by our experience we know simply because God said so. This is, what, this is what fuels belief. It is believing the word of God. This is knowledge by revelation. Not revelation like I sat alone one night in my room and I had this thought that overwhelmed me. No, revelation from the living inerrant word of God. We know because God said so. And this is so important. Faith is not opposed to facts. People talk about faith as if it's something, you know, ignorant people do. It's just a blind faith. It's just a leap. No, faith, true faith is not opposed to facts. Faith is only as good as the integrity of its object. Faith is only as good as how true that object you're placing your faith is. And so, for instance, you could walk out of here and go to the water tower over there and climb up it, and you could believe with all of your heart and every fiber of your being that if you would just jump off while holding an umbrella, you, like Mary Poppins, would safely float to the ground because that umbrella would work like a parachute. You might believe that. That does not make it true. That's a misplaced faith. It, it might be sincere, it might be genuine, it might be heartfelt, but it's in the wrong place. The object of your faith is not worthy of that genuine, heartfelt trust. I know this from experience, from jumping off the garage roof with an umbrella as a kid. It does not slow your fall, even one little bit. It's misplaced. So placing our faith in the right object is absolutely critical. This is why theology is important. Theology gets a bad rap. I've heard over and over in my life growing up, especially in charismatic circles, theology being a bit of a dirty word. It, it leads to staleness. It leads to theology and doctrine. It just robs you. We just want Holy Spirit life. Friends, I'll tell you, there's nothing more practical in this world than sound doctrine than right theology. Theology, by the way, just means what you believe about God. So the reality is everyone's a theologian. You're just either a good one or a bad one. And the question is, how accurate is your theology? You have a theology. You believe something about God. Everyone does. How accurate is what you believe about God? Where did your theology come from? Sincere, heartfelt trust 
and a God of our own imaginations is totally worthless. It does nothing. It's actually destructive, but but dependent trust in God, the true and living God who has revealed himself in Scripture is absolutely life-changing. What you believe matters. Your faith is only as good as its object, and an ill-informed, misplaced faith, it's not only foolish, it's dangerous. It's destructive, much more dangerous than jumping off a water tower with only an umbrella, because that can only kill you in this life. So Christian, how well do you know your God? I I don't mean, I'm not looking for a trite answer. I've been in church all my life. I know a lot of Bible stories. How accurate is your theology? How robust is your theology? Do your feelings submit to objective truth? Or do you shape your theology by the way that you feel? Faith is only as good as its object. And and this faith, this faith that, that God gives that fights sin, has one object, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again, verse nine. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice what Paul's doing here. He knows that we're going to wrestle with this reality. He knows how tempted we're going to be to doubt our union with Christ, to doubt that we've died with him, to doubt that we've died to sin's power over us, to doubt that we have been raised with him to walk in resurrection power. And so knowing that we will doubt that, he doesn't point us to ourselves, And our faith and the measure of our faith and the purity of our faith, no, he points us to Christ. He says first, we know that Christ. This is the foundational theological content that we need in order to overcome sin. It has everything to do with Jesus. It is not about me. It is not about the quality of my faith or or the quantity of my faith. It's not about the purity of my devotion or the consistency of my obedience. There is no help to be found there. You'll never find faith-strengthening, faith-sustaining, faith-increasing realities by looking at yourself. That's misplaced faith. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. That's why verses 9 and 10 are all about him. And what does Paul tell us about Jesus? He says, we know that Christ, verse 9, being raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is not dead. There is an empty tomb. There is a resurrection and an exalted Christ. This Christ who rose from the dead, this Christ who is exalted to the right hand of glory, ruling and reigning over all he has made, putting his enemies under his feet. That is solid ground that we can stand on in our battle with sin. In our battle in this life, you are united with one whom death could not defeat. One over whom death has no claim. One who imparts his supernatural power for life right now to us, to his people. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
Jesus' death was once for all. It's, it's irre, irreversible. What does that mean for the believer? What does that mean for the Christian? Here's what it means, and it's incredible. If Jesus has raised you from the dead, if you are hidden in him, if you are in Christ, because he will never die again, here's what it means. Our union with him is never going to be severed. We're in him. He's united us to himself. Our resources for resurrection living now are never going to be exhausted. You're never going to get to the end of that. Jesus' resurrection life is so irreversible that this resurrection life that is ours because of our union with Christ is also irreversible. If you're his, he's made you to live. You are in him. Your life is as secure as his is. Jesus says this in John chapter 11, verse 25, at the funeral of his dear friend. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, this resurrection life that is ours goes on now for eternity, and it's not even interrupted by our physical death. It's ours. We're in him, and he ever lives, so we ever live. Death, he says here in verse in chapter 6, verse 9, has no dominion over him, over Christ. Dominion means mastery, lordship, to rule over. So Paul says death is no longer the master over Jesus, which should lead us a little bit to shake our heads and go, was death the master over him at some point? Did death have dominion over him at some point? What does that mean? It's implying that death once was master over Jesus, once had dominion over Jesus. How could that possibly be? We need to follow what Paul's getting at here. The Son of God came to give his life as a ransom. The Son of God came, took on flesh, so that he could die. We celebrate Christmas, and, and let me put in my yearly plug, Christians should celebrate Christmas more vigorously than all the rest of the world combined because we have something to celebrate. But the reason we celebrate is not because of a cute baby in a cute little manger scene. No, it's because that baby came on a mission. That baby came born to die. It's an impossible thing for the triune, immortal, invisible God to die. God cannot die. The quandary is if sinful humans, those who were down in that pit, if he's going to save any of them, if they're ever going to be rescued from sin, rescued from sin's consequences, someone has to die in their place. Someone has to be their substitute. And only an infinitely sinless, perfect person could do that. There needed to be a substitute who could bear the wrath of God, the divine penalty for sin, And only one could do that. So from his birth, Jesus was here to die for his people's sin. And so in that way, death, in a sense, had dominion over him by the fact that he came in human flesh, he was liable to death. That's what Paul means by saying death did once have dominion over him. The, the Son of God took on flesh, became a man, a real man. His natural body was subject to the natural consequences of the fall. 
His body was subject to the things our body is subject to. Aging, pain, hunger, sickness, even death. But even more than that, it's not just the physical aspects of death, but Jesus came, he became subject to the infinite, eternal death that is due to sin. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus not only became a man, Jesus became sin. Now, not a sinner. There's some really terrible false teaching out there. But Jesus became a sinner. And in, in, in the word of faith, prosperity gospel circles, they talk about Jesus on the cross being the most vile, depraved wretch, guilty of all these No, 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 no. That's blasphemy. Jesus did not become a sinner. He became sin on our behalf. He, he became the sin bearer on our behalf. In other words, the sins, past, present, future, of everyone who believed were placed on Jesus at the cross. And there the Father punished sin in Jesus. And he didn't let up in the punishing of sin in Jesus until his infinite wrath was fully exhausted, fully absorbed in Jesus. Only Jesus can do what Jesus did. None other could do this. Only Jesus, the infinite second person of the triune Godhead, could absorb infinite wrath, pay infinite penalty. And so death only had a claim on Jesus because he came to bear our sin. He willingly subjected himself to all of this in order to uphold the justice of a holy triune God and to reconcile sinners, us, to himself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus subjected himself in his incarnation But death no longer has dominion over Jesus. Death could not contain him. Death could not defeat him. Jesus laid down his life and he took it up again. It was his all the time. So when Paul says death no longer has dominion, we shouldn't take that to mean that there was some point where death had absolute control over Jesus. That's not the case. Jesus is Lord. Death has no lordship over him. It says then in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's talking here about the full sufficiency, the finality of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. He died once for all, the one and only sacrifice for sin, never to be repeated, Never to be added to all other attempts are futile. Any other attempts are idolatrous and pagan. The death of the Son of God is the fully sufficient final atoning sacrifice for sin. And he says the life he lives, he lives to God. So it is for the believer as well. Having been freed from the penalty and power of sin and death, we now live forever for the glory and honor of our triune God. 
There's no going back. This is what resurrection life looks like. Resurrection life looks like living unto God. So a genuine believer who has been raised with Christ, who is in Christ, who now ever lives because Christ ever lives to bring glory to God, is never going to become an unbeliever. That's not how it works. You're in Christ. Living for his glory, that's the work that the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of the believer. We never go back to a life that pursues sin because we are in Christ, and Christ is never going back to the cross for our sin. It brings us then to the fifth mark, faith that battles sin. This faith is strengthened when we meditate on the truth. We meditate on these things. He says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the first time now. Romans chapter six, verse 11, it's the very first time in Romans Paul's told us to do something. He hasn't told us to do anything yet in this book. What's the very first command we have in the book of Romans? Consider. Consider. Consider to be true the things that are actually true. That's the very first command we get in this book. Now, this is going to unleash the floodgates. And Paul's going to just go and do this and this and this and this and this and this as a result of all this. But the very first thing is think about what is true of you. Dwell on objective truth. All the other commands in Romans flow from that. It's who you are in Christ. Paul's just telling us how to live as Christians, how to, how to live this out. Think about what's true. You are dead to sin and alive to God because you are in Christ Jesus. So consider yourself that way. Oh, friends, you and I desperately need to own these realities. We need to interpret every aspect of our lives through these truths. We need to see everything that happens to us through these truths. We need to know them so well that we can proclaim them to ourselves when we're tempted to sin. We need to know them so well that we can proclaim them to ourselves after we sin. But it's hard to believe what you don't know. We need to know these things so that we can believe these things. We have to learn to preach these things to ourselves, to remind ourselves of these objective gospel truths every day, actually over and over and over again throughout the day. When you're tempted to sin, believer, preach to yourself that I am in Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Jesus' resurrection life belongs to me. I can tell you personally how powerful that is to rehearse these truths over and over and over. And when temptation comes to think about these truths, I am in Christ. I'm not bound to this sin. And now if I'm going to follow through on this temptation, it's me doing it in high-handed rebellion against the God who has saved me. Christian, that changes things for you. There's power in that. And when you do sin, and friends, it's inevitable that you will sin, preach to yourself these gospel 
objective truths. Christ died for sin. I am in Christ. Therefore, I died to sin. The penalty for my sin has been paid in full by Christ. Sin's authority to enslave me has been abolished. Therefore, I can walk in newness of life. Rehearse these gospel truths even as you repent of sin. Look to Christ. We, love, we, we all love the words of that glorious hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. We need to believe these things when it doesn't seem like it's true. Moments of doubt and moments of temptation. When we have sinned, we need objective truth because our feelings lie to us. Let me close by just asking a couple questions. How well do you know God? Do, do you rehearse his attributes in your mind? Do you spend time thinking on these things, meditating on who God is? In moments of temptation, does that come back to you? When you're tempted to sin, do these thoughts begin to flood in or is it just a void? How well do you know what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ? Is it your habit to meditate on these things? Or do you just assume that you know them so you can move on to other things? There's other things I like thinking about, end times, that kind of stuff. Or, but, but this stuff is it's preschool stuff. Now, do you meditate on these truths? What gives you confidence before the throne of grace? Is it something in yourself? Is it your faith, your obedience, your goodness, and you're sort of on the scale of feeling like I'm in better standing with God or, or worse standing with God, depending on how you're doing? Or are you clinging to the cross of Christ as your only hope at all times? Is your confidence with God only found in your union with Christ? Friends, we need to meditate on these glorious truths. There's power here. Our faith is built up here as we meditate on these truths. Our worship grows as we meditate on these truths. Our trust in God in all things grows as we meditate on these truths. And we will see it has been promised to us. This is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the one whom he has saved, the life of the one who is in Christ. We will see increasing victory in our lives over sin. Faith always has a sure result. Let's stand up together and pray. Almighty God, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for these astounding truths that our brother Paul has, has preached to us that, Lord, we confess can be difficult for us to believe in our battle with sin. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us, each one of us, to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on you. I pray particularly, Lord, for the one who, who's here today, those that, that have come into this place that are not in Christ. They've not died and raised with Christ. These astounding things Paul has said are not true of them. 
particularly, Lord, for those who think that they are, but they're not. I pray for them, Lord, by your spirit that you would do only what you can do. Lord, there's no, there's no words, there's no formula that I could present that can cause a heart to live. That is the work of you and you alone, of your spirit. I pray, Lord, in your mercy, in your grace, you would call their name, that you would lift them out of that pit, that you would free them and unite them to your son, Jesus Christ. Cause his death, his resurrection, his sinless life to be applied to them. Grant to them saving faith and repentance from sin. Lord, for those of us that do know you, that are in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would bring these things to our mind. Cause us, Lord, to be steadfast in, in rehearsing gospel truths that would strengthen our faith and give us boldness in a world that is increasingly hostile to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would rehearse these things so that we would have humility to go along with that boldness, that we would speak the truth and we would speak it in love. Pray, God, that you'd be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.